Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome back to Behind the Knife. We've all made it through August, one month into the academic year, and for all the interns out there, congratulations, you survived. The High the Knife team thought it was an appropriate time to dust off a not-so-old relic and bring back two episodes from our medical student and intern survival guide series called Common and Critical Intern Dilemmas. These episodes were first released in July of 2018. And in these episodes, my friend Vahog Nikolian and I take you through common and critical surgical floor issues. This includes everything from the mundane to the most hardcore emergencies you will face as an intern. We hope you enjoy. Welcome to Behind the Knife, Medical Student and Intern Survival Guide. In this podcast series, we focus on high-yield topics relevant to medical students and surgical interns. My name is Patrick Georgioff. And I'm Vahag Nikolian. And we are your hosts. All right, so today's episode is another one geared towards incoming interns. That's right. Today we're covering common and critical floor issues. From the mundane to the hardcore emergencies, we're going to cover it all. And this will be the first of two podcasts. I'm really glad that we're doing this uh, because I remember one of the scariest parts of intern year were going to these hardcore emergencies. I can remember rushing down the hall early in that intern year and suddenly seeing an unstable patient. I myself was tachycardic, sweaty, and all the while wondering, am I going to know what to do? Yeah, we've all been there before, and, and I know I have. It's a truly awful feeling. But it is all part of the training. It takes some time before you can easily recognize and respond to the sick or difficult patient. Now, fortunately, you have Behind the Knife to help ease your mind. All right. So, and never forget, before we get started, every time you encounter a challenging situation, have a low threshold to call for help. This can include senior residents, your chief resident, and even your attending. Uh, you're never alone in the hospital. As a brand new intern, call early and call often. Don't be shy about this. And after a few months, once you get better, you'll be able to dial it back a bit. Yeah, yeah couldn't agree more. Call early. Uh, so in regards to the cases, we're going to cover a whole bunch today. Uh, the cases are going to be quick. And so it's also, uh, I want to point out that it's important uh, uh, to note that for all these cases, there could be a different workup uh, strategy, uh, different diagnoses, and different treatment plans, which uh, you may think of. And all these could definitely be reasonable. Uh, but what we're going here for here is a really big picture uh, a strategy in which high-yield teaching points are going to stick. Uh, and so as such, topics that are covered here are not covered in comprehensive fashion. And in most scenarios, the patient will require uh, some additional uh, workup, treatment, and follow-up for those specific issues. All right, so let's get started with some cases. Patrick, for all of these cases, you are the intern on call. It's July, it's midnight, and mm -hmm. all is quiet. Well, Set up. Well, everything's quiet until you get paged. Dun, dun, dun. It's regarding a 64-year-old woman. She has severe COPD. She's on 2 liters home oxygen, type 2 diabetes, peripheral arterial disease. She's status post-femoral to popliteal artery bypass uh, and is now post-operative day 2. The patient states that she has a funny feeling in her chest and the nurse would like you to evaluate her. Great. So that's exactly what I'm going to do. I'm going to get quickly to this patient's room, uh, assess her, give her once over an exam and get some vitals. All right. So her vitals, she's afebrile, heart rate of 142, respirations of 24, blood pressure of 120 over 80, and she's setting 92% on 6 liters nasal cannula. On exam, she's alert and oriented 
and has mild end expiratory wheezing. She has good pulses throughout her leg and an incision that looks good. Okay. Uh, so to address her hypoxia, I'm going to put her on a non-rebreather mask, and she has a number of cardiac risk factors. I'm, I'm kind of curious right now about whether she has an MI, uh, also considering things like a COPD exacerbation, a pneumonia, or pulmonary embolism. Uh, so for this patient, I'm going to order a STAT EKG, a chest X-ray, CBC, BMP, and troponin. And uh, at this time, I would definitely be calling my chief resident and attending as well. Okay. So the first test back is your EKG. And so what's your approach to reviewing EKGs? Right. So three big questions. Um, I start with three big questions. The first, is it fast or is it slow? The second, is it wide or narrow? And the third, is it regular or irregular? Now, by doing this, I'm able to narrow the diagnosis and management options significantly. So, Vahag, what does it show? So, for this patient, it shows a tachyarrhythmia with irregularly irregular narrow complex QRS and an absence of P waves. Okay. So, narrow complex, irregularly irregular tachycardia. This is most likely AFib with RVR or rapid ventricular response. Remind me, V, does she have a history of, of AFib? No, she does not. Okay. Well, it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon to develop a new onset AFib in the postoperative setting. And for all patients with AFib with RVR, the first thing you need to ask yourself is, is the patient hemodynamically stable and asymptomatic? This patient, aside from some uh, worsening of her baseline hypoxia, is asymptomatic and hemodynamically stable. And so for her, we can consider pharmacological treatment. If she were not stable, we would need to go straight to shocking. Okay, so let's talk about the stable patient with new onset AFib and RVR. Stable means that the patient is not hypotensive, does not have significantly altered mental status, and there is no ischemic chest pain or signs of heart failure. This patient is stable, so what do you want to do? Right, so I would treat her, medic, uh, treat her with medications to help control her heart rate. And my options include a non-dihydropyridine calcium channel blocker like diltiazem, if I was using DILT, I would give 15 to 25 milligrams IV pushed over two minutes initially. I'd watch her blood pressure. If her heart rate didn't improve over the next 15 minutes, I could uh, repeat with a, a higher dose. And if that doesn't work, consider starting an infusion. Another option is a beta blocker like metoprolol. If using metope, I would give 5 milligrams of IV TOPE initially. Uh, I would monitor for five minutes and redose as needed for a maximum of three doses. Now, it's extremely important to monitor these patients carefully after you give them these medications because both will drop their blood pressure. Gotcha. So pushes of IV diltiazem or metoprolol for pharmacologic rate control in the stable patient with AFib with RVR is indicated. We should note that calcium channel blockers like diltiazem should be avoided in patients with heart failure. So let's say this patient wasn't stable. Her blood pressure now is 90 over 50, and she has altered mental status. Yeah, so there's some more urgency here of a hog, and this patient needs electrical cardioversion. In this case, I'm going to call rapid response to ensure I get the help I need. And in general, as an intern, at night, in the hospital, uh, if you need help, you don't know what's going on, you're worried about the patient, call a rapid response too. You get excellent, uh, really experienced nurses that show up to the room and can be a huge help. Um, I would also ask, in this case, for the patient uh, that we get the code card in the room, um, I would ask my nurses to hook up uh, the defibrillator pads. This is typically one pad in the right upper chest and one in the left lower chest. And I would make sure the defibrillator is synchronized before asking the nurse to deliver a 200-joule shock. 
All right, great. So remember, just like Patrick said, go ahead and use that help you called for. Those nurses who arrive with the rapid response team will be very familiar with the situation. They see it all the time. Second, most current AEDs are biphasic and you're safe starting with a 200 joule shock and moving up to a maximum of 360 joules if this doesn't work. Third, if this is new onset post-operative AFib, don't worry about anticoagulating the patient. The CHAD VAS scores and other considerations can be discussed at a later time. And finally, getting shocked hurts and can be quite traumatic for patients. That being said, meds like fentanyl and Versed uh, that can decrease a patient uh, can also sort of cause problems for the patient as well, including decreased blood pressure. So you have to be careful when applying those. If the patient has an altered mental status and is hypotensive like ours is, go ahead and skip sedating them. Okay. I like that. That's a good case. All right. So now let's say the EKG for that same patient we talked about did not show AFib, but instead a regular narrow QRS complex tachyarrhythmia. Okay. So just like the prior case, I want to know, is this patient stable? What are her, her, what's her heart rate and blood pressure? And is she asymptomatic or symptomatic? Okay. Heart rate is 180, blood pressure is 110 over 60, and she has a vague feeling of fluttering in her chest. Okay. So this is most likely, common things being common, a supraventricular tachycardia of sorts. The patient is stable and asymptomatic, so I would start with a vagal maneuver. Um, and uh, you can ask the patient to bear down or blow on their thumb. That's a safe way to get him to perform a vagal maneuver. There's an even more effective uh, method that's described in the REVERT trial. And uh, if you go ahead and just Google REVERT trial, uh, vagal maneuver, you'll get a whole bunch of great images uh, and explanations for a very simple maneuver uh, that includes postural changes in addition to your vagal maneuver that is more effective uh, than just the vagal. Uh, and next, if I'm sure this is a regular tachyarrhythmia, if the vagal maneuver doesn't work, I can try adenosine. All right. So how do you administer adenosine? Pepper? Yeah. So you want to make sure the patient is hooked up to a defibrillator while doing this because their heart will stop. And you want to continuous tracing so you can see uh, what happens after you give the medication. Uh, I would ask a nurse to push 6 milligrams through an IV uh, uh, as rapidly as possible. Now, the patient's heart will stop for a second or two, so don't be surprised when that happens. It's also a good idea to warn the patient that they will have a funny or, and or terrible feeling in their chest, uh, but that will only last for a second or two. And uh, uh, this may interrupt the patient's arrhythmia and, and uh, uh, be curative. It can also provide diagnostic information uh, that can be helpful if this is a different type of arrhythmia. Furthermore, if 6 milligrams doesn't work, you can try to give an additional dose of 12 milligrams. Right. And other things to note, if your patient has central access, the dosages that you're going to give of the meds are going to be less. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Okay. So the vagal maneuvers and the adenosine don't work. What are you okay. going to do next, Patrick? All right. So marching on that line, uh, the patient can be shocked in this point. Um, uh, in this case, though, uh, compared to AFib, you would start with a 100-joule shock before moving higher. Alright, so to summarize, for a stable patient with narrow QRS complex tachyarrhythmia, we start with vagal maneuvers, we then try adenosine, and then we'll shock them if we have to. If the patient is unstable, we'll go straight to shocking them. Great, now that's, that's absolutely correct. I should note, we should note that if vagal maneuvers and adenosine don't work, and the patient is uh, stable, and you're okay with watching them for some time to see if their tachy, uh, tachycardia self terminates, you could consider giving metoprolol or DILT at the same dose as previously discussed for the AFib case. 
Okay. So let's move on. Uh, same patient, but this time she has ST segment elevation in the lateral leads. Okay. She probably has some chest pain, I'm assuming. Yep. Chest okay. pain. All right. So a STEMI. All right. So how do you manage a STEMI? Yeah. Well, uh, I used to just use the acronym MONA, but that that's out now. Uh, morphine, uh, apparently in, in, in some of this more recent research, morphine can worsen outcomes. So you don't want to give that anymore. Uh, as well as oxygen. Hyperoxia can be too bad, so you want to keep the patient normoxic, um, right around 94% or so. And uh, what you do still give, though, is a, is an aspirin, 325 milligrams of aspirin. Ask the patient to chew it. You also give 80 milligrams of atorvastatin. And if the patient has chest pain or they're hypertensive, 0.4 milligrams sublingual uh, nitroglycerin. All right, great. So, and what about... Uh What's the most important thing you're going to do uh, other than the meds that you just Yeah, yeah, you're, you're getting to an important point here. So I'm going to call cardiology and, and or page the MI pager immediately. Uh, so the time to percutaneous coronary intervention is critical here. You do not want to delay calling cardiology. All right, so uh, let's move on to the next case. Again, it's the middle of the night and you are on your own. Uh, this time it's an obese 58-year-old man with hypertension, diabetes, and colon cancer whose status post laparoscopic sigmoidectomy about 12 hours ago. He's having worsening abdominal pain, and the nurse would like you to evaluate him. Okay. Just like before, I'm going to go see the patient immediately. What do I find? All right. So this is a patient. His vital signs are as follows. He's afebrile. Heart rate's 134. It's regular. Respirations are 24. His blood pressure is 96 over 60. He's setting 94% on room air. On exam, he's alert and oriented, but he's diaphoretic and slightly short of breath, and his abdomen is moderately distended and mildly tender to palpation in the right lower quadrant only. Yeah, I don't like this one. So he's tachycardic, he's hypotensive, and he's short of breath. Um, that being said, he's, this is a very broad differential still. So I'm going to go ahead and order a CBC, a BMP, and a VBG, and obtain a chest x-ray and abdominal x-ray. I'd also give this patient a liter of fluid. Okay, so his labs are completely normal except for a lactate of 3.8. His chest x-ray is clear, and his abdominal x-ray shows an ileus, no free air. And despite the liter of fluid, the patient's heart rate remains at 134, and blood pressure remains at 96 over 60. All right, so this patient is in shock, and that's defined as a state of cellular hypoxia that occurs due to reduced oxygen delivery, uh, increased oxygen consumption, or uh, poor oxygen utilization. And the three major types of shock that I'm worried about are cardiac, septic, and hypovolemic, although none of these really jump out at me as a def uh, definitive diagnosis at this point. Uh, just uh, for the sake, we'll start with cardiac shock. This is less likely as the patient has no cardiac history and no chest pain, uh, but I would order a stat EKG and a trope to rule out uh, MI, arrhythmia, etc. Okay, so the EKG shows the tachycardia and the troponins are negative. Yeah, that's a normal sinus tachycardia? Yep. Okay. All right, uh, so let's think about septic shock for a second here. He has two SERS criteria and two Q-SOFA criteria and a lactate of 3.8. Uh, that could definitely add up to a septic shock. However, he's not febrile. He has no white count, and he's only 12 hours out from his surgery. Now, common post-surgical causes of septic shock include pneumonia, UTI, an asthmatic leak, etc. But these all tend to occur a bit later on, and so um, uh, he could be septic. I'm going to go ahead and, and give uh, uh, another liter of fluid, in this case LR. 
Okay. Uh, you do so, but again, no change. And now the patient actually looks pale to you. Okay. So the final type of shock mentioned is hypovolemic, and this is what I'm favoring. I do think this patient has a postoperative bleed. Now, normally, uh, this would be the first thing on my differential. Okay. okay? Um, but for the sake of this podcast, we wanted to mention the others and kind of draw it out. But it, truth be told, this is this is number one. All right. So what if I told you that the patient's hemoglobin is right at its baseline? Yeah. Yeah, you did tell me that. So I'm assuming it's the same as it was preoperatively. Uh, but the fact of the matter is if he's bleeding, he's bleeding whole blood. Uh, his hemoglobin isn't going to drop until things equilibrate. Uh, and I would bet, Vahog, if we rechecked his hemoglobin now, after some time has passed and we gave uh, what a total of two liters of fluid so far, that it will definitely have dropped. So let's do a VBG. I can get a quick hemoglobin off of that and trend this lactate. All right. So uh, this shows a hemoglobin drop from that 12 baseline to 7.6 and a lactate now that's sitting at 4.2. Okay. So without a doubt, this guy has a postoperative bleed. So, again, postoperative bleeding can be super tricky to diagnose because it isn't always obvious. It can also be tricky to determine if the patient has cardiac, septic, or hypovolemic shock, or some combination of all three of these. That being said, as an intern, you must maintain a high index of suspicion for postoperative bleeding. Yeah, that's exactly right. But you don't be satisfied with a normal or slightly decreased hemoglobin, especially if the patient's showing signs of a postoperative bleeding, including hypotension, tachycardia, uh, they're pale, diaphoretic, short of breath, and on exam, cool and clamped down. Other things that can help you out are looking at the operative note. Was there any bleeding during the case? How much blood did they lose? And also, what kind of fluids did the patient get resuscitated with? Yeah. All right, one last tip. You can always throw an ultrasound probe on the patient's belly to look for free fluid. Now, a small amount of free fluid after surgery is normal, uh, but a whole bunch would not be. All right, so what do you want to do next? Yeah, uh, this is an emergency. I'm going to call my chief if I haven't already, call the OR and book the case as an emergency, and ensure the patient has adequate IV access, ideally at least two to three 16 to 18 gauge IVs. I would type and cross the patient uh, for blood to have it ready for the OR, and I'm going to give some blood now. Uh, you could start with something like two units of pack cells with two of FFP with plans for platelets uh, down the road here shortly. Great. So definitely worth reiterating, uh, maintain a high index of suspicion for postoperative bleeding. Yeah, do it. So let's go on to the next case. This is going to be a quick one. The nurse pages you about a patient with a hard-to-treat hypertension. His blood pressure is 194 over 104, and he has already received 20 milligrams of IV hydralazine and 10 milligrams of IV labetalol. Yeah, these are frustrating cases. Uh, lots of calls, lots of pages of this late at night. Um, let's uh, start with the standard treatment. It's, these are the two meds you mentioned, really. Uh, most commonly, at least we use here at the University of Michigan, are hydralazine and labetalol. Um, you give hydralazine 10 to 20 milligrams IV every four hours as needed, uh, with the main side effect being reflex tachycardia. In regards to the labetalol, uh, same dose, 10 to 20 milligrams IV, um, the peak effect of labetalol is about 15 minutes, uh, and we, re- we dose that about every four hours or so as well. Now, the thing to look out for labetalol is bradycardia, so you want to include uh, heart rate hold parameters when, when ordering it. All right, so good point. But in this patient, neither of the drugs, hydralazine nor labetalol, work. So what are some other options? Yeah, uh, there are a lot of other options. Uh, and, and some of the most common ones used in the inpatient postoperative setting include nicardipine, clonidine, metoprolol, and esmolol. 
Uh, now, doses of these medications are easily accessible online, and, and some, most of the time I still have to look those up, too. And while we tend to avoid restarting home medications, especially hydrochlorothiazide, ACE inhibitors, and ARBs after surgery, your senior resident or attending might okay their use, and that could be helpful in controlling pressure. And so why are we generally uh, holding some of these meds yeah, that you mentioned? I just had that question the other day. And so we're trying to avoid hypotension in a postoperative patient who may bleed, who may become dehydrated, or may need another inter- intervention. And we're also trying to avoid kidney injury and hypotensive reactions with anesthesia, which can occur with ACE inhibitors and ARBs. All right, gotcha. So it's also important to ensure that the patient does not have a treatable cause of hypertension, like pain, and that they are not hypertensive because of something more sinister, like, say, a stroke. Great. Those are yeah, absolutely excellent points. Okay. So for the hypertensive patient, we are starting with labetalol and hydralazine and then moving on to medications like clonidine or nicardipine. Are you ready for another case, Patrick? Let's do it. All right. Now let's talk briefly about sepsis. But before we do, I want to direct you guys to our prior episode titled Sepsis and Critical Care Intro. If you want to hear all about the details, listen to that episode because today we're just going to do a quick summary. Yep. And again, we're stating... Uh, that uh, being able to recognize and treat sepsis is extremely important. And it's something all interns should be well-read on and at least semi-comfortable with. Okay, so let's say you've got a 58-year-old man with an esophageal cancer who's now status post-transhiatal esophagectomy. He's five days out from operation and looks septic. He's febrile, tachycardic, and hypotensive, and he's making very little urine. He has an elevated white blood cell count and an cre- uh, elevated creatinine. What do you want to do next? Yeah. So he's septic. I'm worried about an anastomotic leak. And uh, I would start by treating this patient according to the surviving sepsis guidelines, which we have conveniently summarized for you in our previous, previous episode. Uh, uh, the overarching principle is definitely to achieve source control. That's first and foremost, achieve source control. But in the meantime, there's a lot of things you can do to help stabilize this patient. Number one, I would start broad-spectrum antibiotics as soon as possible. At the University of Michigan, we often use vancomycin and zosin, or if the patient has a penicillin allergy, as trianam, flagyl, and vancomycin. Number two, I'm going to give fluids. Per the surviving sepsis guidelines, a septic patient should be fluid challenged with 30 cc's per kg bolus. So for a 70-kilogram patient, that's 2.1 liters. You can forget the math and just know that the average size adult needs a 2-liter fluid challenge before you can call them non-responsive. Now, if the patient needs more than 2 liters of fluid, as determined by their heart rate, their blood pressure, the urine output, you should definitely go ahead and give it. Uh, we're aiming for a mean arterial pressure greater than 65 and urine output greater than one half cc per kg per hour or roughly 25 to 35 cc's per hour in a normal-sized individual. Number three, I'm going to obtain cultures, but I will not delay the administration of antibiotics. This includes urine cultures, blood cultures, and a chest x-ray. If the patient's intubated, you would get a bronchioalveolar lavage. And four, think about logistics and monitoring. This is a situational type thing. You want to ensure your chief is aware of the situation and move that patient to higher level of care immediately. You also want to ensure appropriate monitoring for the patient, including things like telemetry, uh, pulse oximetry, arterial lines, central lines, Foley catheters, etc. All right. So great summary. Uh, why don't we move on to our next scenario? So, Patrick, how do you manage post-operative hyperglycemia? Yeah, another challenging one, just like hypertension. Uh, and as an intern, I can remember getting extremely stressed out about this. 
Uh, in general, uh, we try to keep glucose between 140 and 180. There have been a number of studies that have looked at even tighter glucose control, but these fail to show a benefit and in some cases were actually harmful. All right, so 140 to 180 sounds like a good goal, but in the post-operative period, glucoses can be all over the place. How much do I need to worry about it, really? Yeah, good question. In general, in general, uh, you don't have to worry about about it too much. I mean, hyperglycemia, an episode or two, is not a big deal. Um, a bigger danger certainly is hypoglycemia. And how low is too low, and when do you get worried? Yeah, so once it falls below 60, you should really investigate and try to figure out what's going on, especially if the patient is symptomatic. If they're symptomatic, you can go ahead and give an amp of dextrose, uh, which is 50 cc's of 50% dextrose in water. That's 25 grams of, of dextrose total. All right. So when using it or when giving it, uh, administering insulin, how are you treating hyperglycemia? Yeah. So this is a general statement as well. So typically for our postoperative patients, uh, especially those that aren't eating, we use a sliding scale of short-acting insulin like Novolog, also known as Aspart. An evaluation of glucose and treatment with a short-acting sliding scale is typically ordered to occur every six hours or with every meal and before bed. And in general, we uh, hold oral hypoglycemic medications and long-acting insulin like Lantus, also known as Glargine. We do that because a patient's oral intake can uh, vary and is uh, highly unpredictable, and we don't want them to, again, get hypoglycemic. And then sometimes interns are going to see patients who aren't even on these uh, four times a day dosages of insulin, but rather on a drip. How are you managing these drips and when are you using them? Yeah, yeah. That's a, another like kind of anxiety provoking question, right? You know, it's in the middle of the night, you're by yourself. Do you start insulin drip or you try to dose it yourself? And so it depends who you ask. But once insulin gets about 300 or 350, uh, you should definitely or at least be very seriously considering starting an insulin drip. Okay. So as an intern, I remember uh, thinking it was a huge deal to put someone on an insulin drip, but really it's not. If it's indicated, it's indicated. And if uh, you're the intern on the floor, dosing short-acting insulin yourself is generally a losing battle. Yeah, I've been on that road many times. I'm like, I don't know, it's not quite high enough. I'll treat it myself. Give a couple doses and it's literally just sort of chasing your tail the whole time. It's, it's very difficult to do. And when you order an insulin drip, the whole, the whole thing is protocolized and the nurses worry about it for you. They check the glucose every single hour and change the dose accordingly. So you're going to get much better control of your patient's sugar. It's going to be managed by someone who knows what they're doing with the protocol. Uh, and that makes it easier for everyone. All righty. So let's wrap it up. Um, I thought today's episode was great. A lot of these like sort of stress inducing things were discussed and patrick did a good job of going through all the cases I um i hope next time you guys will join us for part two of the common and critical floor issues but before we do so let's go ahead and do a rapid fire review i thought you were never gonna ask me all right patrick first question what are the two most common medications and their dosages uh used to control heart rate in a stable patient with new onset uh, atrial fibrillation with rvr yeah, so IV, delti IV deltiazem is one. You would give 15 to 25 milligrams over two minutes IV. Another is metoprolol. You'd push five milligrams IV. Okay. Uh, second question. How do you treat a STEMI? Yeah, not Mona anymore. Uh, now I've given aspirin, have them chew it, a statin, and nitrates if they're hypertensive or have chest pain. And I would certainly be calling cardiology as soon as possible. Okay, number three. If a patient's hemoglobin is normal, does that mean they're not bleeding? Of course not. No, that's a that's a trick question. Do not be tricked by normal hemoglobin. Patients bleed high blood, or excuse me, high blood. They bleed whole blood, uh, and you have to maintain a high suspicion 
in a post-operative patient who may be bleeding. Okay, number four. What are two medications commonly used to treat hypertension? Yeah, IV labetalol, given 10 to 20 milligrams IV, or IV hydralazine, also 10 to 20 milligrams IV. All right, number five. When should you consider starting an insulin drip? In general, once your glucose climbs above 300 to 350 or so. All righty. So nice work, Patrick. And remember, when in doubt, call someone. Perfect. Perfect. Until next time, dominate the day. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.